Welcome to the Wicked Podcast, where we read the business books you don't have the time for. I'm Marcus Kirsch. And I'm Troy Norcross. And we are your co-hosts for the Wicked Podcast. We take from the thousands of business books out there and test the author's ideas by comparing them to real-world challenges. With over 40 years of projects between us, we've got quite a bit to compare against. We give you the condensed takeaways, followed by our interview with the authors. We know you want actions, not theories, and it's actions that we want to help shape, because that's what the Wicked Podcast is all about, helping you to become a wicked company. Marcus, what time is it? And why are we doing this so early in the morning? Uh, Because we're passionate and dedicated about what we do in order to make the world a better place. Ha! (laughs) Ha! I need more coffee, even so. But while I'm having some coffee, who's on the show today? So today we have Chris Oestreich uh, and his book, uh, Pandemic Capitalism, here. And he's been, he's joining us all the way from Bangkok. Right. So Bangkok, that is about seven hours ahead. So that's why it's his afternoon, but it's our early morning. And you're right. We are dedicated for our show and for our listeners. Um, what were your takeaways today? So my main takeaways, even so we talked uh, quite a fair bit about uh, universal basic income, but uh, in terms of actions for any of our clients or anyone to take tomorrow, again, emphasis on, uh, you know, expertise is no longer as valuable as it was before for the type of problems we're doing. So we're doing, we have, we, the, the problem, and I like to talk about, you know, the, the a problem evolution is what we're living in, not a technology revolution, right? So uh, we need to spend more time on understanding the problem, which means a lot of us, the expertise we're bringing in is just not that valuable anymore because it will change in a month or so. So expertise is no longer as valuable, meaning that spend more time on understanding the problem. There you go. That's my takeaway. Yeah, and um, you know, pandemic capitalism, uh, most people, especially considering the timing of what's going on in the world right now, would have assumed that this was related to COVID-19, but it's not. It's really how capitalism itself is indeed a pandemic. And what is the treatment for capitalism going to be? And I do believe that there are a number of organizations that are taking this opportunity to stop and look and decide what are we measuring? Is it going to be growth at all costs? Or are we going to expand and think more about our employees, about our customers, society at large, and, and the environment, and go to more kind of a shareholder capitalism instead of a pure stakeholder capitalism. And we had a really great discussion about how that all kind of fits um, and wrapped up with the fact that social media, you know, absolutely, there's amazing content that's out there, but it's also poison. So I think a really, really great discussion. But uh, enough of my whittering on uh, why don't we do something like go to the interview? Yes, let's do that. Hello, everyone. Uh, this morning we have uh, Chris Oestreich with us. Uh, Chris, hi, uh, all the way over to Bangkok, uh, and thanks for joining us. Hello, and thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so this is the second time we met. We met uh, before, I think. We emailed last year, and then we met on a, on a, on on the panel or round table or you know it wasn't really a round table mm-hmm. there of course uh, and uh, there's a lot about uh, wicked problems there but uh, let's let's start at the top as we always do and tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about the book and why you wrote it sure my uh, my latest book is called pandemic capitalism and basically the 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 main thing behind the book or under underpinning it is the idea that 
capitalism is basically like a disease that has to spread to survive. And so it continually consumes more and more resources, more and more people's lives and, and in a destructive way, um, at least the current form of capitalism that we have. And so what I tried to, the, the, the reason for writing the book was to try to help people see how I see that and get them thinking about how we might uh, want to do things differently in the future. Great. Um, so let's just kind of pick up on the whole idea of, of capitalism. Um, one of the topics that we talk about a lot, or at least I talk about a lot, is the difference between what we're in today, which I call shareholder capitalism and mm -hmm. stakeholder capitalism. And in stakeholder capitalism, I always think you need more than just the shareholder. You need to think about the employees and the customers, society at large, i.e. how you pay taxes as a company and the environment. Uh, how, do you, how do you separate those two or is it all pandemic and is it all capitalism all the way? Well, I, I, um, again, I can kind of bring, come at this from, from two different ways. So I talked about this in my book a little bit about how what I suggested was, you know, I know the idea of like going straight to like socialism is just terrifying for a lot of people. They've been, you know, we've been raised with the idea of that's this horrible thing that's going to destroy all of our lives. Um, so, so what I suggested in my book was basically a layer cake with a mix of socialism and capitalism so that the socialism takes care of your basics. You get your home, you, you get your clothes and your food and, and all of your necessities, everybody's necessities get taken care of. And then what you do with capitalism beyond that, I don't really care. Um, you you want to go and make profits out of whatever, as long as you're living within um, ecological limits, you know, you're not destroying the environment by, by pursuing um, your business interests, you know, go for it. Um, but I, but I think that we, we need to pull back a little from what we, what, the direction we've gone in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, as far as shareholder capitalism, uh, I guess I can plug the book that we're working on now. But my company, or my, my publishing company, Wicked Problems Collaborative, what we do is um, anthologies around different wicked problems. The one that we're working on right now is on um, the, the moment that we're in. It's called, What Do We Do After the Pandemic? What I asked all of the co-authors to, to do is consider one system that we really needed to change, that we really needed to take it from what we're doing today or the way it is today and really make a, a big change and say, this is the one systems change that humanity needs that will really put us on a better path. And I've got a couple of chapters in that one that are around um, stakeholder capitalism and cooperativism and different things like that. So there, I think there are a lot of different things that, that, uh, that my contributors sh uh, shared there that, that we could look at. I'm all for lots of experiments. I, I believe the, in the idea of building a new thing. You know, don't fight the existing system, go and show people a different way, do lots of experiments, find something that works better and build on that and people follow. So that's, that's kind of, the, that's, that's what I think as far as an approach. Um, but I definitely think that the, the stakeholder piece of it is just critical because we're, we're not there right now. And, you know, the, the problems, the outcomes are pretty obvious from that. Yeah. Very, very good thing about the experiments. We had an entire podcast that Marcus and I did just ourselves on how to do experiments. So whether that's in an organizational level or whether it's in new economic models, we totally support experiment, experiment, experiment. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. What did you learn from that? Yep. Um, picking up on the on the UBI. No, go ahead. You started to say. 
I was just going to say, um, one of the other things I'm involved with is the uh, Circular Design Lab. Uh, one of the co-founders of that with three of the faculty members I used to teach with at Thomas Jeff University here in, in Bangkok. That's a, a uh, an experiment where we came together and we had, a, between us, we had a lot of experience with facilitation, leading workshops, shops, designing them, and systems thinking, and human-centered design, and all these kind of related areas. And what we've been doing with that um, effort is bringing together community members, kind of building a community of, of people who are interested in these sorts of problems, working at the community level, learning about systems thinking, learning how to look at these big problems and, and um, building experiments and trying to see if we can start to nudge things in better directions. So uh, we've been doing that for about two years now um, mm -hmm. and starting to see some really interesting opportunities out of that where um, one of our efforts is working on air quality. The, we have, we've had some real challenges with air quality with PM 2.5 over the last few years. And our group is getting a petition signed and they're doing lots of events. They're raising awareness and just bringing the level of concern and the people that are pushing to, to get positive change out of that is really, really cool. Not, not one of the initiatives I'm um, leading, but one of them, that, one of the ones I'm really proud of. So really cool stuff. Really great. Um, uh, coming back to the uh, the UBI or universal basic income, which is a significant part of the book and, and something that I, I quite like and I quite like to talk about. But I would say if you're going to replace the concept of a job with UBI, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, you're only replacing half of what a job brings. You're replacing the yeah. money side. The other half is, yeah. so please tell me why I should get out of bed. How do you get a sense of purpose? So if UBI is the money part, how do you, how do you address the purpose problem? Um, well, first, I don't, I don't suppose a UBI will replace all of anyone's income. Um, I think it was probably a portion that gives you kind of a shock absorber where if you lose your other incomes that you're not suddenly complete without income. But for most people, I'm guessing it's not gonna be everything they need. Um, but as far as purpose, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wired different, differently than most, but I have so many things that I want to do um, to, to help with humanity and, and improve the, the, the way things are that, that I feel compelled to do that I, I feel, I don't think it would be a problem. I mean, I'm sure there were people who would be just laying in bed going, what do I do today? Um, but I think in general that if you had time to garden, to learn to bake, to help your neighbors, to learn to paint or play music. I and mean, look at what we did in the beginning of the pandemic, where you saw all these really cool videos where people were spending time at home and they were doing all these really neat things that they never had time to do. Mm. You know, it, it, I don't think there's any problem there. I think that is just BS, that people are using that as one excuse for not doing something like this. I, 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 don't, I do not believe that people won't find something, a, a purpose in life because what did they do before people had jobs? You know, I mean, were people just laying around out in open fields being miserable because they, there were no jobs to go around? I just, yeah. I don't buy the idea. <laughs> Back in the 80s, well, 70s, really, when I was growing yeah. up, there were a couple of books about utopia. And the utopian mm -hmm. society was where everything was fully automated and you didn't have to go to work. You didn't have to do anything. And you could pursue mm -hmm. the arts. You could pursue more time with family. You could do all of those different things. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a really interesting kind of aspect. I'm, I'm glad you call it out as being a BS because sometimes that's exactly <laughs> what it is and you got to call it for, for what it is. Um, Marcus, over, over to you. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I want to follow up on that a little bit as well because I think it's a really interesting conversation full of myths. And, you know, um, um, I, lo I love science fiction movies and I 
I wrote an essay when I was in, in, in secondary school around the, the city of the future in movies. And you could see how it went from these utopias where everyone was dressing in Greek togas <laughs> and everything was white and freshly rebuilt to something more like Blade Runner, right? And, uh, and you said, you know, people are at home bringing a lot of now things out that they before didn't have time for, but always wanted to do kind of thing. And you finally turned that around. What's your view on when people collectively, so back into, let's call it organizations or companies where you always will have, and I'm, I'm quoting David Marquet here, uh, you will always have hierarchy. You don't always have necessarily the management and the, the driven control and decision-making in that way, but you always mm -hmm. have hierarchy. And when you have hierarchy, you have yeah. people who listen to other people in order what to do and what not to do. So at home, you're pretty much your own master and you can do this. You don't feel that pressure. In an organization, what do you think needs to change that people are equally as enabled, maybe? Yeah, I, I kind of um, believe in an idea of what I think of as facilitative leadership, um, where, like say I'm doing a project with the, the Circular Design Lab group. There are times where I might be leading the process, where I might be making decisions for the group, and there may be times where I completely go back into the woodwork and someone else is leading and we just kind of, you know, pass it around to whoever needs to take over at that moment does it. Um, when I teach at, at university, I teach uh, courses related to social innovation. I try to teach um, all of my, my students to think of themselves as being able to lead, but also being able to be part of the team and to collaborate with each other and figure out who needs to do it, uh, who needs to be stepping up and who needs to be stepping back at different times. Uh, it's a very different model from what we see in like corporations and any, any kind of hierarchical um, organization. So I, I think that's probably a, a difficult model for large organizations to think about. Um, but I think you know, there was like hierarchy, I think was the name of it a few years back that had a lot of, um, people talking about it, but it, it was, it tried to take away hierarchy, but then it added a lot of process. Um, I kind of feel like if everyone knows where you're starting and where you're going and you agree on that, then who's leading becomes a lot less important because the, you're already aligned and you don't, you know, someone may have to make decisions at some point, but if you can figure out, uh, like if I'm on a big project, values and purpose, I think we, we always try to figure out what those are when we start so that you have the, the starting point, you know you're going there, and then how do we get there together as efficiently and as successfully as possible rather than, you know, keep continually going back to the one person who's making all the decisions for you. I think, I think that's a really, really, really great point because I'm, I'm, I literally, I just started just about a month ago, a new transformation project for an organization here in London. And it's the same thing, exactly what you're saying. So it's quite substantial and it's a key effort to align, right? And to have mm -hmm. agreement also often on language. And uh, that gets me then into a question around practices, right? Um, a lot of different practices have different languages that come with it. And I've yep. been in a lot of situations where you spend hours just agreeing on what certain words actually mean. And I just yeah. came out of a meeting yesterday, same thing. And we all laughed about it, so it's all good-spirited. But mm -hmm. what's, your, what's your view then on things like, do we have to be more like polymathic maybe, you know, or definitely 
have more skills that we know a bit more of, be more jacks of all trades rather than specialists? Do you see that shifting or what's your, what's your view on that therefore? I, I guess it depends on what you're doing. Um, I, I think being somewhat of a polymath, you know, having different disciplines where you know a fair amount that you can bring to the table can be very beneficial um, because you can look at things from different perspectives than, than someone who is just deep in one, in one uh, thing. Um, I, I've seen a lot of people saying basically expertise is no longer valuable because it doesn't solve problems like it used to. Um, but I think we're trying to solve different problems than we used to with, with, with expertise. So if you look at the uh, Dave Snowden's um, Kinefin model, where you've got simple, complicated, complex, and chaotic, um, simple is like, I, I recognize that my, my faucet is leaking and I need to go and either re repair it or replace it myself because it doesn't take any special knowledge. Um, I know the basics of, of replacing that. I can take care of that. Um, I've got a water leak coming out of my wall. I better call a plumber. Um, plumber comes out. They've got expertise that's germane to that problem. They're going to come in, diagnose it, and fix it for me. Um, but then you get into the complex domain, and that's where expertise kind of falls off because we're used to telling experts, here's the problem. You go fix that. When you get into the complex domain, and it's beyond just that area of expertise, usually you, you may need several areas of expertise, and you probably need a lot of local knowledge to be brought to the table. So I work on circular economy issues um, here in Southeast Asia. And if I went in there and just said, you know, okay, you just need some recycling bins and a truck to come by every couple of days, that, you know, kind of like setting it up what I, like I would for a company in the U.S. to set it up within their business, um, it would be a miserable failure. Um, it, it takes more of going there, meeting the people, understanding why are the things happening the way they are now? What do the people care about? What, what would they like to see happen? What are they willing to do? How, how would they like to see this changed? And, you know, and working with them, collaboratively designing, getting them to lead that design and implement it and own it, rather than just saying, here's your new system, good luck to you. Uh, so you know, if, I, if it was just a matter of bringing expertise to the table, we'd probably fail. Um, but if we bring a number of relevant types of expertise to the table and we work collaboratively with the people who are going to own that change and have that understanding of the local systems, then we have a much better chance. And then we need to know that these sorts of changes take a lot of time. If you're doing systems change, you're going to spend a lot more time up front understanding the problem than people that are normally designing systems change want to spend. It's usually like, a, you know, you kind of hand wave at understanding the problem. Oh, we know what the problem is. And then you jump into solutions and, you know, you get, you end up with solutions that are, you know, kind of not really well designed for purpose. Context matters. We actually have it printed on a t-shirt. Uh, love the problem, not the solution. Absolutely. And really kind of understanding the problem is so much the important part of any process is understanding what's the right question before you're ever going to get close to the answer. Um, so circular economy, that's, that's interesting, kind of leads me to one of the other questions that I've got. We spend so much time, energy, resource, et cetera, manufacturing junk, absolute <laughs> rubbish, yep. you know? Yep. And yep. it's always this endless, relentless pursuit of growth over all things. Yep. And nation states measure their success based on GDP. And I personally believe that measuring a success of a country based on GDP alone is, is broken, is, is obsolete. Um, how does that kind of factor into your thinking? 
Oh, I mean, it's totally, totally aligned. I, if you ask me, in, in the short term, humanity should be banning anything that is not a necessity. So kind of akin to how I think we ought to be dealing with the pandemic. Um, you know, doing only, you know, anything that's non-essential. When, when we went with in the Northeast, when the pandemic first started and things were getting really bad in New York and they locked down and they shut it down to just essential things, that gave them a chance to get the, the number of infections down and they got everything under control. I would look at the, the, the way we're using the planet's resources in the exact same way. We're beyond what's, what can be used. We have to get it within the planetary limits. I, I like to look at Kate Rayworth's donut economics model for this. You, know, you look at all these different ecological, uh, ecological boundaries that we're going beyond. Okay, what, what's essential? Okay, anything that's not essential, cut that away. Are we within boundaries then? If not, how do we cut that back even further and just skimp by until we get things under control? And then once you've got anything, everything back under control and you've got some room to play with, then, then you can figure out collectively what you want to do with those resources. But if you continue to use more resources than the planet can give you, it's going to end badly. And you can see that's already happening. Yeah, the, the donut economics model, I've just been recently introduced to that. Uh, apparently, they're starting to trial that in the Netherlands. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, they've got they've got the donut economic donut economics action lab that uh, Kate Rayworth started. They're starting in in uh, in the Netherlands. They've got little they've got groups in, in other parts of the world that are starting up experiments, trying to figure out what they can do. But the big the big experiment is in the Netherlands so far. So definitely something to keep an eye on to see see where that goes because it seems like there's some real commitment there to make positive change. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm so, one, sorry. Go on, got one more, yeah, because I'm slowly wrapping up. <laughs> right, well, I'm going to ask one more quick one. So there you go. social media, social media and, and the challenges of social media, um, whether that's, you know, buying and selling attention or driving influence or, you know, just kind of pushing people in a particular way. Can social media be used to kind of drive some of your thinking in a positive way? Yeah, I, mean, I, I I use social media as a uh, as an educational tool. I follow a lot of really sharp, really interesting people who are deep um, knowledge experts in domains that really matter to me. And I learn and from from the things they share, that you know their own content and the things that they share of others. It's it's a great tool, I think. You know, being on like Twitter especially, for you know kind of cutting through. There's so much content created these days. You can find those people who, who just, you know, they just pour out fountains of, of gold where you can just learn so much from them. Um, it's fantastic for that. So, I mean, I think there's, there's certainly positive uh, stuff that's available through social media, but it's also poison. So figuring out what to do with the, the problematic stuff, um, we've got a long way to go on that, and it's um, not a lot of time to figure it out. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, Marcus, over to you to wrap us up. Yeah, I, I think um, it's it's great to hear. I think, especially when we started talking about that, that you know, talking to someone like you, and you're halfway around the planet, and uh, I think the the round table where we met was was gave me the same impression. You know, the good thing is sitting uh, for for everyone who sits at home and 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 looks at the screen and talks to their close proximity, um, is that that there's so many people out there 
who I think are starting to madly shift how we look at things and actually doing something about it. For us, it feels more natural. For others, maybe not so. So I hope that, you know, what we talked about today helps other people to go, hey, it's out there. It's already starting. Uh, you're not alone. And let's just tap into these things. And as you said, the internet is a great way to tap into this. Mm -hmm. Just our podcasts. Uh, so, and therefore, I, I'll, I'll thank you, uh, Chris, for today, for your time, for your insights and, and a great chat. And, and thank you very much for being with us. Thank you guys for having me on. This was a pleasure. I, I really appreciate it. Cheers. You've been listening to The Wicked Podcast with co-host Marcus Kirsch and me, Troy Norcross. Please subscribe on Podomatic, iTunes, or Spotify. You can find all relevant links in the show notes. Please tell us your thoughts in the comment section and let us know about any books for future episodes. You can also get in touch with us directly on Twitter on at Wicked and Beyond or at Troy underscore Norcross. Also, learn more about the Wicked Company book and the Wicked Company project at wickedcompany.com.